Chapter 11 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 11. Consuelo remembered that Madame de Kleist, the better to conceal her frequent visits to the Princess Amelia, often came on foot in the evening to the chateau, her head enveloped in a thick black hood, her form in a dark-colored cloak, and resting upon the arm of her domestic. In this manner she was not remarked by the people of the chateau, and might pass for one of those persons in distress who disguise themselves in order to beg, and who thus receive some assistance from the liberality of princes. But in spite of all the precautions of the confidant and her mistress, their secret was somewhat like that of a comedy, and if the king did not testify any vexation at it, it was because there are some little scandals which it is better to endure than to noise abroad by opposing them. He well knew that these two ladies conversed together much more about trank than about magic, and though he condemned both subjects almost equally, he shut his eyes and was inwardly pleased with his sister because she affected a mystery which would relieve him from all responsibility in the eyes of certain persons. He was perfectly willing to pretend to be deceived. He was not willing to appear to approve the love and follies of his sister. It was therefore upon the unfortunate Trank that his severity had fallen heavily, and he was even obliged to accuse him of imaginary crimes in order that the public might not guess the real cause of his disgrace. The porporina, thinking that the servant of Madame de Kleist wished to assist her incognito by offering his arm to her in the same manner as to his mistress, did not hesitate to accept his services and to lean upon him in order to walk steadily upon the ice-covered pavement. But she had not made three steps thus when this man said to her in an easy tone, Well, my beautiful countess, in what humor did you leave your capricious Amelia? In spite of the cold and the north wind, Consuelo felt the blood mount to her cheeks. Apparently this valet took her for his mistress and thus betrayed a revolting intimacy with her. The porporina, seized with disgust, withdrew her arm from his, saying to him coldly, you are mistaken. I am not accustomed to be mistaken, replied the man in the cloak with the same ease. The public may be ignorant that the divine porporina is Countess de Rudolstadt, but the Count de Saint-Germain is better informed. Who are you then? said Consuelo, overpowered by surprise. Do you not belong to the household of Madame the Countess de Kleist? I belong only to myself, and I am the servant only of truth replied the unknown. I have just given my name, but I see that Madame de Rudolstadt is not acquainted with it. Are you the Count de Saint-Germain in person? And what other could give you the name of which the public are ignorant? Stop, Madame Countess. Twice you have almost fallen in the two steps you have made without my assistance. Have the goodness to take my arm again. I know the way to your dwelling very well, and consider it a duty and an honor to reconduct you thither safe and sound. I thank you for your kindness, Sir Count, replied Consuelo, whose curiosity was too much excited to permit her to refuse the offer of this interesting and strange man. Will you also have the kindness to tell me why you address me thus? 
because I desire to obtain your confidence at once by showing you that I am worthy of it. I have known your marriage with Albert for a long time and have kept it an inviolable secret for both of you, as I will keep it so long as such is your wish. I see that my wishes on that point are very little respected by Monsieur Supperville, said Consuelo, who hastened to attribute to the latter Monsieur de Saint-Germain's notions respecting her position. Do not accuse that poor Supperville, resumed the Count. He has never said anything, except to the Princess Amelia, to make his court to her. It is not from him that I have the fact. And from whom, then, in that case, sir? I have it from the Count Albert to Rudolstadt himself. I well know that you will tell me he died at the conclusion of the religious ceremony of your marriage, but I shall reply that there is no death, that no one, no thing dies, and that we can still converse with those whom men call the departed when we know their language and the secrets of their life. Since you know so many things, sir, you are not ignorant, perhaps, that such assertions cannot easily convince me, and that they pain me greatly by incessantly bringing before me the idea of a misfortune which I know to be without remedy, in spite of the lying promises of magic. You are right to be on your guard against magicians and impostors. I know that Cagliostro terrified you by an apparition that was at least unseasonable. He yielded to the glory of exhibiting his power before you, without reflecting upon the disposition of your soul and the sublimity of his mission. Still, Cagliostro is not an impostor. I must say thus much, but he is a vain man and on that account has often deserved the reproach of charlatanism. Sir Count, the same reproach is applied to you, and as it is nevertheless added that you are a superior person, I feel courage enough to tell you frankly the prejudices which combat my esteem for you. That is speaking with the nobleness which belongs to Consuelo, replied Monsieur de Saint-Germain calmly, and I thank you for this appeal to my loyalty. I will be worthy of it and will speak to you without mystery. But here we are at your door, and the cold as well as the lateness of the hour prevents my keeping you here any longer. If you wish to learn things of the highest importance and on which your future lot depends, permit me to converse with you in freedom. If your lordship will come to see me in the daytime, I will expect you at any hour you may name. I must speak with you tomorrow, and tomorrow you will receive a visit from Frederick, whom I do not wish to meet because I do not respect him. Which Frederick do you refer to, Sir Count? Oh, not to our friend Frederick de Trank, whom we have succeeded in getting out of his hands, but to that wicked little king of Prussia who pays court to you. Hold, there will be a grand redotto at the opera house tomorrow. Be there. Whatever disguise you may choose, I will recognize you and make myself known to you. In the crush we shall find solitude and security. Otherwise my connection with you will bring great misfortunes upon sacred heads. Till tomorrow then, Madame Countess. Speaking thus, the Countess St. Germain bowed low to Consuelo and disappeared leaving her petrified with surprise upon the threshold of her dwelling. There is certainly, in this kingdom of reason, a permanent conspiracy against reason, said the cantatrice as she fell asleep. Hardly have I escaped from one of the perils which threatens mine when another presents itself. The Princess Amelia had given me an explanation of the last enigmas, 
and I thought myself quite tranquil. But at the same moment we meet, or at least we hear, the supernatural sweeper who walks in that chateau of doubt, in that fortress of incredulity, as quietly as she would have done 200 years ago. I free myself from the terror occasioned by Cagliostro, and here is another magician who appears even better informed respecting my affairs. That these diviners should keep a registry of all that concerns the lives of kings and of powerful or illustrious personages I can conceive, but that I, a poor, humble, and retiring girl, cannot conceal any fact of my life from their investigations, this is what confounds and disturbs me in spite of myself. Well, let me follow the princess's advice. Let me expect that the future will explain this prodigy also, and while expecting, abstain from judging. What would be most extraordinary in all this would be if the visit of the king, foretold by Monsieur de Saint-Germain, should really take place tomorrow. It would be the third time only that the king has visited me. Can this Monsieur de Saint-Germain be in his confidence? They say we must especially mistrust those who speak ill of the master. I will try not to forget it. The next day at one o'clock precisely, a carriage without livery and without arms entered the court of the house in which the cantatrice lived, and the king, who had sent to give her notice two hours before, to be alone and to expect him, penetrated to her apartments with his hat on his left ear, a smile on his lips, and a little basket in his hand. Captain Crutes brings you some pears from his garden, said he. Evil-intentioned persons pretend that they come from the gardens of San Susi and were destined for the king's dessert. But the king does not think of us, thank God, and the little baron comes to pass an hour or two with his little friend. This pleasant opening, instead of putting Consuelo at her ease, troubled her strangely. Since she conspired against his will by receiving the confidence of the Princess Amelia, she could no longer brave the royal inquisitor with an impassive frankness. She would thenceforth be obliged to manage him, to flatter him perhaps, to turn aside his suspicions by skillful coquetries. Consuelo felt that this part did not belong to her, that she should play it badly, and especially if it were true that Frederick had a fancy for her, as was said at the court, where the courtiers would have thought they disparaged the royal majesty by using the words love with regard to an actress. Anxious and troubled, Consuelo awkwardly thanked the king for the excess of his goodness, and at once the royal countenance changed and became as morose as it had before been radiant. "'What's the matter?' said he, roughly, knitting his brows. "'Are you out of temper?' Are you ill? Why do you call me sire? Does my visit interfere with some love intrigue? No, sire, replied the young girl, recovering the serenity of frankness. I have neither intrigue nor love. Well and good. If it were so, after all, what is that to me? But I should require you to make the avowal of it to me. The avowal? Sir Captain means the confidence, doubtless. Explain the distinction. Sir Captain understands, nevertheless, as you will, but to distinguish is not to answer. If you were in love, I should wish to know it. I do not understand why. You do not understand at all. Look me in the face. You have a very vague glance today. Sir Captain, it seems to me you wish to ape the king. They say that when he questions an accused person, he reads in the white of his eyes. 
Believe me, such manners are proper only for him. And moreover, if he came to my house to subject me to them, I should request him to go about his business. That is, you would say, be off, sire? Why not? The place of the king is upon his horse or upon his throne, and if he chose to come to my house, I should have the right not to suffer by his sullenness. You would be right, but in all this you do not answer. You do not wish to take me for a confidant in your next loves? There are no next loves for me, as I have told you often, Baron. Yes, laughingly, because I ask you in the same manner. But if I speak seriously now? I answer in the same manner. Do you know that you are a singular person? Why so? Because you are the only woman of the theater who has nothing to do with passion or gallantry. You have a bad idea of the women of the theater, Sir Captain. No, I have known some chaste, but then they had an eye to rich marriages, and you nobody knows what you think of. I think of singing this evening. So you live from day to day? Henceforth I live no otherwise. Then it was not always so? No, sir. You have loved? Yes, sir. Seriously? Yes, sir. And long? Yes, sir. And what has become of your lover? Dead. But you have been consoled? No. Oh, you will be consoled. I fear not. That is strange. Then you do not wish to marry. Never. And you will never have a lover? Never. Not even a friend? Not even a friend, as the fine ladies understand it. Bah! If you were to go to Paris and the king, Louis XV, that gallant knight... I do not love kings, Sir Captain, and I detest gallant kings. Ah, I understand. You like pages better. A pretty cavalier like Trank, for example. I have never thought of his face. And yet you have retained relations with him? If it were so, they would be of pure and honest friendship. Then you allow that those relations subsist? I did not say so, replied Consuelo who feared to compromise the princess by this simple admission. Then you deny it? I should have no less reason to deny it if it were so. But why does Captain Crutes question me in this manner? What interest can he take in all this? The king apparently takes some, returned Frederick, taking off his hat and placing it roughly upon the head of a polymnia in white marble, an antique bust of which occupied the bracket. If the king did me the honor to come to my dwelling, said Consuelo, overcoming the terror which seized upon her, I should think he wanted to hear some music, and should place myself at my harpsichord to sing to him the air of Ariana Abandonata. The king does not like prevarications. When he questions, he wishes to be answered plainly and clearly. What were you doing last night in the king's palace? You see that the king has the right to come to your house as a master, since you go to his at improper hours without his permission. Consuelo trembled from head to foot, but in all kinds of dangers she happily had a presence of mind which had always saved her as by a miracle. She recollected that Frederick often pleaded falsely to obtain a truth, and that he was reputed to obtain avowals more by surprise than by any other method. She therefore kept on her guard, and smiling through her paleness, she replied, 
That is a singular accusation, and I know not what answer to give you to such fanciful questions. You are no longer so laconic as you were just now, returned the king. How clearly you betray yourself when you lie. You were not at the palace last night? Answer yes or no. Well, no, replied Consuelo, courageously, preferring the shame of being discovered in a falsehood to the meanness of betraying another in order to exculpate herself. You did not leave it at three in the morning, entirely alone? No, replied Consuelo, who recovered her strength on seeing an almost imperceptible irresolution in the eyes of the king and already rose superior to his surprise. You have dared to say no three times, cried the king, with an angry air and a glance of lightning. I will dare to say it a fourth time if your majesty requires it, replied Consuelo, determined to face the storm to the end. Oh, I know very well that a woman will maintain a falsehood under tortures, as the early Christians maintained what they thought to be the truth. Who would flatter himself that he could draw a true answer from any female? Listen, mademoiselle. I have had an esteem for you hitherto, because I thought you alone were an exception to the vices of your sex. I did not believe you either intriguing, or perfidious, or shameless. I had in your character a confidence which reached even to friendship. And now, sire, do not interrupt me. Now I have my opinion, and you will feel its effects. But listen to me attentively. If you should have the misfortune to mingle in little intrigues of the palace, to accept certain misplaced confidences, to render certain dangerous services, you would vainly flatter yourself that you could long deceive me, and I would drive you hence with as much disgrace as I have received you with distinction and goodness. Sire, replied Consuelo boldly, as the dearest and most constant wish of my heart is to leave Prussia, whatever may be the occasion of my dismissal and the harshness of your language, I shall receive with gratitude the order for my departure. Ah, you take it thus, cried Frederick, transported with rage, and you dare to speak to me in such a manner. At the same time he raised his cane as if he would strike Consuelo, but the air of quiet contempt with which she awaited this outrage made him recover his senses, and he threw his cane away, saying in an agitated voice, Come, forget the right you have to the gratitude of Captain Crutes, and speak to the king with proper respect. For if you urge me too far, I am capable of correcting you like a rebellious child. Sire, I know that children are whipped in your august family, and I have been told that your majesty, to escape from such usage, formerly attempted to take flight. That means will be more easy to a Zingaro like myself than it was to the Prince Royal Frederick. If your majesty does not order me from your kingdom in twenty-four hours, I will myself reassure you respecting my intrigues by quitting Prussia without a passport, even were it necessary to fly on foot and to leap over ditches like the deserters and smugglers. You are crazy, cried the king, shrugging his shoulders and walking across the chamber to conceal his vexation and repentance. You shall go, I ask nothing better, but without scandal and without haste. I do not wish you to leave me thus, dissatisfied with me and with yourself. Where do you get your insolence? And what devil impels me to the good nature I display with you? It doubtless comes from a scruple of generosity which your majesty may dispense with. 
You think you are indebted to me for a service which I would have rendered to the least of your subjects with the same zeal. Therefore consider yourself acquitted towards me a thousand times, and let me depart as soon as possible. My liberty will be a sufficient recompense, and I ask no other. Again, said the king, confounded by the bold obstinacy of this young girl. Always the same language. Will you not change it with me? Ah, this is not courage, it is hatred. And if it were so, replied Consuelo, would your majesty care the least in the world? Just heaven. What do you say, poor little girl? said the king with an accent of artless sorrow. You do not know what you say, unfortunate. Only a perverse soul can be insensible to the hatred of his fellow creatures. Does Frederick the Great consider the porporina a being of the same nature with himself? Intelligence and virtue alone elevate certain men above others. You have genius in your art. Your conscience must tell you if you have loyalty, but it tells you the contrary at this moment, for your soul is full of bitterness and resentment. And if it were, would the conscience of the great Frederick have nothing to reproach itself with for having excited those evil passions in a soul habitually peaceful and generous? Come, you are angry, said Frederick, making a motion to take the young girl's hand, but he stopped, restrained by that awkwardness which an inward contempt and aversion for women had caused him to contract. Consuelo, who had exaggerated her vexation in order to drive back into the heart of the king a feeling of tenderness ready to explode in the midst of his anger, remarked his timidity and lost all her fear on seeing that he awaited her advances. It was a singular fact that the only woman capable of exercising upon Frederick a kind of spell resembling love was perhaps the only one in his kingdom who would not have wished to encourage this disposition at any price. It is true that the pride and repugnance of Consuelo were perhaps her principal attraction in the eyes of the king. That rebellious soul tempted the despot like the conquest of a province and without reflecting upon it, without staking his glory upon this species of frivolous exploit, he felt an admiration and an instinctive sympathy for a strongly tempered character which seemed to him, in certain respects, to have a kind of relationship with his own. Now, said he, abruptly thrusting into his vest pocket the hand he had extended toward Consuelo, do not tell me again that I do not care about being hated for you would make me believe that I am, and the thought would be odious to me. And yet you wish to be feared. No, I wish to be respected. And it is by blows of the cane that your corporals inspire your soldiers with respect for your name? What do you know of that? What are you speaking of? What are you meddling with? I reply plainly and clearly to your majesty's interrogations. You wish me to ask your pardon for a moment of anger provoked by your folly? On the contrary, if you could break over my head the cane scepter which governs Prussia, I would beseech your majesty again to take up that jonk. Bah! If I should caress your shoulders a little with it, as it is a cane given to me by Voltaire, perhaps you would only be more witty and more malicious. Well, I value this cane very much, but you require a reparation. That I see very well. Saying this, the king again took up his cane and attempted to break it. But notwithstanding the assistance of his knee, the cane bent and would not break. 
See, said the king, throwing it into the fire, my cane is not, as you pretend, the image of my scepter. It is that of a faithful Prussia, which bends under my will and will not be broken by it. Do the same, Porporina, it will be better for you. And what then is your majesty's will respecting me? This is a fine matter to exercise the authority and disturb the serenity of a great character. My will is that you give up your idea of leaving Berlin. Does that offend you? Frederick's piercing and almost passionate glance sufficiently explained this kind of reparation. Consuelo felt her terrors revive and pretending not to understand. To that, replied she, I will never be resigned. I see that I must pay too dearly for the honor of sometimes amusing your majesty with my roulades. Suspicion weighs upon every one here. The lowest and most obscure beings are not safe from an accusation, and I could not live so. You are dissatisfied with your emoluments, said the king. Well, they shall be increased. No, sire, I am satisfied with my emoluments. I am not covetous. That your majesty knows. That is true. You do not love money. I must do you that justice. I cannot tell what you do love, however. Liberty, sire. And what restrains your liberty? You want to quarrel with me, and you have no good reason to bring forward? You wish to depart. That is clear. Yes, sire. Yes. Is that very decided? Yes, sire. In that case, go to the devil. The king took his hat and his cane, which, rolling upon the andirons, had not been burnt, and turning his back, went towards the door. But at the moment of opening it, he turned again towards Consuelo, and showed her face so ingenuously, so paternally afflicted, so different, in a word, from his terrible regal brow, or from his bitter smile of a skeptical philosopher, that the poor child was herself moved and repentant. Accustomed as she was with Porpora to these domestic storms, she forgot that there was for her in the heart of Frederick something personal and savage which had never entered into the chastely and generously ardent soul of her adopted father. She turned to hide a secret tear which escaped from her eyelid, but the eye of the lynx is not more quick than that of the king. He retraced his steps and, raising his cane anew above Consuelo, but this time with an air of tenderness with which he would have played with the child of his heart. Detestable creature, said he to her in an agitated and caressing voice, you have not the slightest friendship for me. You are much mistaken, Sir Baron, replied the good Consuelo, fascinated by this half-comedy which repaired so adroitly the real fit of brutal anger on the part of Frederick. I have as much friendship for Captain Kreutz as I have aversion for the King of Prussia. That is because you do not understand, because you cannot understand the King of Prussia, returned Frederick. Let us not speak of him. A day will come when you have inhabited this country long enough to know its spirit and its necessities, in which you will do more justice to the man who tries to govern it as it should be governed. In the meanwhile, be a little more amiable with the poor baron, who is so completely wearied with the court and courtiers and comes here to find a little calmness and happiness by the side of a pure soul and a candid mind. I had but an hour to profit by, and you have done nothing but quarrel with me. I will come again on condition that you will receive me a little better. 
I will bring Mopsil to amuse you, and if you are very good, I will make you a present of a beautiful little white greyhound she is now suckling. You must take good care of it. Ah, I had forgotten. I have brought some verses of my composition, some stanzas upon music. You can arrange an air to them, and my sister Amelia will amuse herself by singing them. The king went away quite gently, after having turned back several times, talking with a gracious familiarity and lavishing frivolous flatteries upon the object of his good will. He knew how to say nothings when he pleased, though in general his words were concise, energetic, and full of sense. No man had more of what is called fund in conversation, and nothing was more rare at that period than this serious and firm tone and familiar intercourse. But with Consuelo he could have wished to be a good boy, and he succeeded well enough in giving himself the air, so that sometimes she was artlessly astonished. When he had gone, she repented, as usual, that she had not succeeded in disgusting him with her and with the fancy of these dangerous visits. On his side, the king departed half dissatisfied with himself. He loved Consuelo after his fashion, and could have wished to inspire her in reality with that attachment and admiration which his false friends, the wits, pretended when behind him. He would perhaps have given much, he who by no means liked to give, to know once in his life the pleasure of being loved in good faith and without afterthought. But he well felt that this was not easily reconciled with the authority he did not wish to yield, and like a satisfied cat which plays with the mouse ready to fly, he was not absolutely certain whether he wished to tame or to strangle her. She goes too far and it will end badly, said he to himself as he re-entered his carriage. If she continues so obstinate, I shall be obliged to make her commit some fault and send her to a fortress for some time in order that the discipline may bring down this proud courage. Still, I should prefer to dazzle and govern her by the prestige I exercise over so many others. It is impossible for me not to succeed with a little patience. It is a little labor which irritates and amuses me at the same time. We shall see. What is certain is that she must not go now and boast that she has told me unpleasant truths with impunity. No, no, she shall not leave me unless submissive or broken. And then the king, who had many other matters on his mind, as may well be believed, opened a book in order not to lose five minutes in useless reveries, and left his carriage without much recollection of the ideas with which he had entered it. The porporina, anxious and trembling, was engrossed somewhat longer with the dangers of her situation. She reproached herself greatly with not having insisted upon her departure until the end, with having allowed herself to be tacitly bound to renounce it. But she was drawn from her meditations by a parcel of money and letters sent to her by Madame de Kleist for delivery to Monsieur de Saint-Germain. All was intended for Trank, and Consuelo was to accept the responsibility. She was even to assume also, in case of need, the character of the lover of the fugitive in order to conceal the Princess Amelia's secret. She therefore saw herself placed in a disagreeable and dangerous position, the more so that she did not feel very sure of the loyalty of the mysterious agents with whom she was brought in connection, and who seemed to wish, on the other hand, to interfere in her own secret. 
She busied herself about her disguise for the ball at the opera house, at which she had accepted a rendezvous with St. Germain, even while saying to herself with resigned terror that she was on the brink of an abyss. End of chapter 11, read by Bryce Cries, December 2021.